Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Hey church, how we doing? Woo, a little more energy now than uh, during the announcement portion. I get it, I get it. Uh, For those of you joining us online, we are glad that you are with us as well. Uh, If you're new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and uh, we're glad to to have you guys along for the ride. We're continuing on in our series called Love Where You Live. Last week, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, kind of frames the series. You can go back, you can find that online if you uh, are so inclined to do so. But we're going into week two, and and really uh, the, the desire and thrust of this entire uh, series isn't necessarily to, to confine us to a boundary, but it really is where it is that we have found ourselves. So we have found ourselves living at, in this place, in this moment of time, surrounded by very specific people that I believe that God has placed into your life for a reason. Uh, And so because of that, we need to be very intentional with the way that we love those people. Um, And, uh, and, and, I don't always love people uh, the way maybe I should. When I was uh, when I was in high school, we actually we we made the jump and we decided that we were going to get an exchange student for an entire year, uh, and so that's a that was a pretty pretty long, uh, solid commitment to just being like, yeah, we'll have a stranger over for a year. I get exhausted when people are at my house for like a couple hours, but we were like, yeah, let's do it for a year. Um, and so we got a, uh, an exchange student. His name, we got one. It was like we purchased him. Uh, we got the opportunity to host somebody named Mirik uh, from, uh, from the Czech Republic. Uh, and um, he was my brother's age. He was a year older and great dude. Um, we, we were into kind of a lot of the same things. He was into sports. We did sports. He, I mean, it was a whole lot of fun. Um, but, uh, but growing up, we went to church. I went to FCA. I did the youth group thing. I did all of that stuff. And so uh, Merrick was kind of along for the ride with us to a lot of those different things. And, and one night, it was just him and I. I brought him to, uh, to FCA with me, which is Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's kind of a parachurch organization. Um, and so they did, I remember they did this really strong, like, gospel presentation at the very end of it, right? And I'm like, man, this is the moment Merrick is going to get all sad and weepy. He's going to realize he's broken in need of a savior, like all of these different things, right? And so on the way home, I'm like pushing the issue, and I'm like, Merrick, hey, man, uh, what did you think about uh, all of that? And he was like, you really believe that? Like, you really believe that Jesus died and then came back to life? Like he, so he starts going on just like this monologue about how I, I I'm, you should believe in Jesus, or <laughs> Jesus, I do, I should believe in Jesus, believe in Santa and the Easter bunny, and you're going to tell me the tooth fairy is real. Like all of this stuff just started just like mocking me. And you know like when, uh, when there's someone who walks by your front window and the hairs on your dog on the back of their neck stands up really, really high? Okay, that uh, is what happened to me, and I was just angry. I was so frustrated with him. And so, like, I just attacked him, like, verbally assaulted him. I was, like, cussing at him in the name of the Lord. Like, <laughs> it was not it was not a good, not a good look at all. Like I have since then like been like, you know what, I'm going to lay that tactic to the side. Um, Because really what ended up happening is it got, I was so concerned with being right that I forgot to be concerned with being loving. And I think really is that is kind of the crux of what we're talking about today when it is our desire to love where we live and specifically to those people who are non-believers. I think oftentimes we as Christians get caught up in being right rather than being 
loving. And the reality is, is we need to hold both of those things in tension. Because I don't ever want to shirk on the truth. I don't ever want to water down a gospel. I don't ever want to present something that simply isn't true to make somebody feel better. But at the same time, I also want to make sure that when I get the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus, that I'm doing so with grace, I'm doing so with respect, uh, and I'm doing so in such a way that is full of compassion and love. Um, And I really didn't do that with Merrick at all. Uh, He, to the best of my knowledge, we've kind of kept in contact thanks to Facebook and that sort of thing. Um, But, but I mean, to the best of my knowledge, he doesn't yet know Jesus. And I oftentimes wonder to myself, like, hey, if that conversation had gone differently, if I had maybe been a little bit more graceful with the way that I had talked to him about uh, knowing Jesus, maybe not burn that bridge. Because after that, he never came to FCA with me ever again. Um, he came to church with us because that was an entire family thing that we, we did. And my parents were like, nope, we, we get you for <laughs> another three months. So get in the car with us uh, sort of thing. But outside of that, those conversations really were kind of severed. And it's one of the things that we need to realize, specifically when it comes to Jesus as well, is that his entire adult life, Jesus' entire adult life was characterized by a deep concern uh, for the spiritual condition of the non-believer. A deep concern for the spiritual condition uh, of the non-believer. He saw them as desperately lost. He saw them as broken because of that, right? His compassion really for their well-being was incredibly deeply rooted. And he showed them kind of this concern specifically in the way that he interacted with them, okay? When people showed up, he taught them. He healed them. He went to people's houses who, who, who were really desperate in need of, of a Savior. So the example that Jesus set for us then is to build relationships with those people who don't know him. Okay, when we meet a person who hasn't experienced, God, hasn't experienced God's grace, we're supposed to have the heart of Jesus and extend that helping hand at their point of need, whatever that point of need may be. Now, on like the grander scale of some of the things that we're doing here, you know, we're doing that cards and cookies ministry. I was like, man, it's super, super simple. But, but I don't know of a better way for somebody who doesn't know me personally to be like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop him some sugar and a little bit of encouragement in this card and hope that like that would brighten my day. I don't know a specific need. We don't know their specific needs of those pastors in town or, um, or pastoral staff in town or, or those who are uh, firefighters and that sort of thing in Kings County. But I guarantee you that that is a felt need and like, hey, I'm gonna be encouraged today. I get the opportunity to, to move forward with that. And so that is our responsibility. Really because Jesus came to rescue us uh, when we were lost. And so like I said last week, Paul did everything out of kind of a, a fear of God and a recognition of Christ's love for us. So because of that, we can find opportunities to do what we can to help others who are separated from God. Because of the fact that we have a fear of God and Jesus loves us. But here's the reality. This is the reality of most churches. This isn't this church. This isn't, uh, you know, older churches or whatever. But the reality is, is as a church continues to progress in its timeline, churches tend to turn and, and kind of circle the wagons. And it's not intentional. You can see this in, in church plants that have happened over the past like 20 years or so is that they get a new pastor, they get a new group of people who are really, really excited about the direction and the vision of the church, and this is where we're going to go. And so they get a whole bunch of people on board, and everybody's telling their friends about it because they're all really excited about what's going down. And so like, hey, you should come check this out. You should come. And so they're growing, and they're growing, and they're growing. And at some point, 
they, they kind of just get lackadaisical and they, and they take for granted what it took for the church to grow to the size it was, what it took for the church to be able to proclaim the name of Jesus in a way that they were. And so slowly but surely, they start kind of circling the wagons and slowly but surely, they start talking more and more about the church isn't doing this for me and the church isn't giving me this. And so because of that, I'm frustrated and it turns into a me mentality. And before we know it, the wagons have been completely and totally circled. We're isolated from the community and we no longer care about what outsiders think about us. And that's not, I'm not saying that's FBH, okay? I think that, that every single church has these tendencies and it's our responsibility to be careful about those because Jesus cares very deeply about the, the spiritual needs of those people who don't yet know him. This is exemplified in Matthew 9, okay? It's not gonna be up on the screen, but I'll read it for you. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, okay? Matthew was a tax collector Jesus had met earlier that day. So he comes and he sa it says, uh, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked Jesus, why did, or they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call the right, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Let's read that last part again. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is obviously very, very concerned with those who don't yet know him. Very concerned about it. And I think it's clear that we, in countless ways and opportunities, can and should do our best to love those who don't yet know him. This is the heart of the Gospels. This is the entire reason that Jesus came, to reconcile a broken creation to its perfect creator. That's why Jesus came in the first place. So the question remains then is how is it that we should treat those people who don't yet know him? How should we treat non-believers? How should we live in such a way that those people who don't know Christ would recognize that we exemplify Christ in our lives? The first thing we need to recognize the first thing we need to come to a fundamental understanding is, is that those who do not know Jesus are going to hell. That's a very heavy reality. But we need to be okay hearing that. Because if you are a Bible-believing Christian, it is very clear that the Bible says those who do not know Jesus are destined for condemnation. We love, as Christians, we love uh, John 3.16, right? Even like dribbles into to 17. But you guys ever wonder why we don't continue like in that trajectory? Like, oh, John 3.16. Let's read it out to John 3.16 all the way through 18. This is what it says. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're all super familiar with that portion. Let's keep going. 17. It even feels good through 17. It says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, because Jesus loves everybody, but to save the world through him. That's why Jesus was here. Awesome. Perfect. Let's read verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The Bible is very, very clear about what happens to those people who are not in a relationship with Jesus. And it's two verses after the most famous verse in Scripture. Whoever does not believe stands condemned 
We have a responsibility to this, church, because we have a fundamental understanding of what happens after we are no longer here. C.S. Lewis puts our responsibility this way. C.S. Lewis says, uh, Jesus Christ did not say, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite right. It's a very British way of writing it, by the way. I was like, quite right? Yeah, okay. Thanks, C.S. Charles Staples Lewis, in case you guys are curious about what the CS stands for. But he is very, very clear on what our responsibility is because the world is not quite right. The world is completely and totally messed up. You want to know how I know? Let me give you a couple really, really encouraging uh, statistics for you to talk about how terrible the world we live in is. It says that actually 40%, 40%, 4 out of 10 for you non-mathematicians out there, 40% of all men are hiding a secret that if it came to light, their marriage could be ruined. That's an American statistic. 40% of all American men are hiding a secret currently that if it came to light, their marriage could be ruined. Four out of 10 men could have a hard time redeeming their marriage should their secret, whatever it is, come to light. You want to talk about a broken world? When men are called to be the spiritual head of the household and 40% of them are hiding a secret that could decimate their family. Or even worse, one of the saddest realities of our world. Did you know that? So today is February 28th, okay? We are 59 days into uh, 2021. Did you know that in 59 days, 6 million babies in the world have been aborted so far this year? In 59 days. I'm not talking about a calendar year. I'm not talking about 12 months. I'm talking about in 59 days, over 6 million babies in the world have been aborted. The World Health Organization estimates that somewhere between 40 and 50 million babies are aborted every single year. Regardless of circumstance, between 40 and 50 million babies are aborted every year. And regardless of the reason, whether the parents didn't feel like they had another option, or they felt they weren't prepared, or in some countries where babies are aborted because of the sex of their baby, whatever it may be, 40 to 50 million babies. You want to talk about a broken world? So those who don't know him need to be made aware of him so they can get to the other side of this depravity with hope. Our responsibility is not to go into the world and tell the world that it is quite right. Our responsibility is to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what Jesus tells us. Because those who don't believe in God are condemned already. And while the sacrifice for Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus was for the entire world, for God so loved the world, which is inclusive, being with God for eternity is limited to those who place their faith in him, which is exclusive. So while Jesus died for the world, we still have to profess his name as Savior. So there is no way that we can in good conscience believe what we believe and not tell others about Jesus. If you are a Bible-believing Christ follower, you cannot believe what you believe and not share this message. It is our responsibility to do so. So what should we do about those who don't profess Christ, who happen to be in our lives? First things first, we have to see them for who they are. Okay, these people are lost souls. That doesn't give us the moral high ground. We are broken just as well. We just happen to meet God first. 
So these people are not yet followers of Jesus. Last week, I talked about the idea of looking at people as souls rather than looking at them as individuals. My friend Peter Pollock texted me, and he was like, hey, I really appreciated looking at someone like a soul. He said, it's really easy for me to not like somebody, like the person of somebody, but it's really difficult for me to hope that somebody's soul no longer makes it into heaven. So we have to look at those people, not, like not just as our coworkers or our family members or our friends, but rather souls that have a destiny. In the same way that we went from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ, our friends and our family members, we hope they will move in that direction. They are people who we want to help know Jesus. And every single lost person deserves to know who Jesus is deserves to know the spiritual state of them uh, of themselves at that point and what that spiritual state could look like we have to see people as people that that Jesus died for and people that he desires to know Peter and Paul actually both tell us that God desires that that no one should perish but that all would come to knowledge of the truth it's one of my biggest frustrations with like this distortion of Christianity that how could a loving God how could a loving God send people to hell That question is fundamentally flawed because the loving God isn't condemning people to hell. A loving God actually reached out his son in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to give you a pathway from hell. And he hopes that no one would perish. It says in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heart of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, I urge you then, First of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Jesus' heart is for the unbeliever. That's the whole reason he came was to mend a broken creation to its perfect creator. So while we understand that, the first thing we need to do is understand, understand the, the spiritual state of the non-believer. The second is we should look for every opportunity to tell the reason that we have hope in Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that we should take every opportunity to make, to make Christ known. 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, about, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Let's say, let's say all, always is the term there. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Like I said last week, this doesn't just mean simply waiting for someone to ask you about your hope. Right? I'm just going to sit back. Hopefully somebody notices that I'm different. And then when they ask, I'll talk to them about Jesus. Like, great. If they ask you, yes, go for it. Scripture's very clear. Yeah, give a reason for it. But on top of that, go on the offensive. You want to know a really easy way to do this? Because I know a lot of people get really kind of stressed out, really concerned, like, how is it that I'm supposed to share my faith in Jesus? Like, how do I even bring up that topic? Okay? 
And, and the biggest issue is just getting over that hurdle of kind of like fear and uncertainty of like how are people going to respond to this in some way, shape, or form. This is the easiest way to do it is simply ask the question, do you have a faith? Do you have a faith? Because that conversation is going to open up, or that question is going to open up conversation in a way that allows people to talk about what they do or don't believe, and then you can expand on it from there. So do you have a faith? It's not do you believe in God. Do you have a faith forces them to elaborate on what that faith is. Or they say, yeah, you're like, oh, great, tell me about it. Tell me about your faith. What is it that you believe? Well, I grew up going to church. My mom, my mom was Catholic, and we grew up going to, going to uh, mass quite a bit when I was little. I was like, oh, do you, still, do you still do that? No, well, I haven't gone for a while. Oh, do you go to church now? No, I don't go to church now. Well, what is it that you believe in? Well, I believe in God, but I'm not really sure. Great, continue the conversation from there. But the question that oftentimes opens the door is, do you have a faith? Do you have a faith? And not every conversation you have with people is going to bring them to like weeping and leading them into a prayer of confession and reconciliation to God. But the good news is, is that God is bigger than you and that just because you have one conversation and you don't lead every single person that you know to faith based on that first conversation, that they are never going to find Jesus after that. I'm very thankful for a big God, especially in light of the conversation that I had with my exchange student when I was in high school. I still have faith that Merrick will come to know who Jesus is, regardless of my failures. But simply starting that conversation may allow God to work and use it later on down the line. A couple years ago, I had a student by the name of Riley. Uh, It was when I was a youth pastor. I was working down south at a church and um, this student named Riley, uh, she was a senior in high school, and she showed up to one of like our, our fun events, right? You do the fun events, and then you can sneak them into small groups after that. And so we came, like we did one of the fun events, and it was an outreach. Hey, bring your friends. We're going to have food. We're going to bribe you to come and be with us, right? Um, and we're so cool. Come back next week. There won't be as many fun things or food, but we'll tell you some Jesus. And so she came to the fun thing, and I got an opportunity to talk with her. Like, her friend introduced me to her. I was like, hey, I'm Peter. Hey, I'm Riley. Hey, Riley, nice to meet you. And we did, like, the basic, like, hey, what school do you go to? She was a senior, like I said. And so, oh, are you going to college next year? What are you doing? She told me a little about her college, her plans. And then I simply slipped in the question, hey, Riley, do you have a faith? And it wasn't weird for her. You want to know why it wasn't weird for her? Because we were at a church function, and she knew I was a Christian. And so it's not weird for people when they know that you're a Christian if you ask that question of them. As a matter of fact, they should expect that question because you care so deeply about what it is that you believe that you care enough to ask them that question. You want to know how people know whether or not you love them or not? Ask them about things that matter. And as a Christian, this should matter more than anything else in your life. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, Riley, do you have a faith? And it really was the exact same thing that I told you earlier. Hey, yeah, I grew, up going, I, I grew up Catholic. You know, we used to go to church a lot, but my mom and my dad, they got a divorce. And after my mom and dad got a divorce, my mom stopped going to church. And so I haven't really been anywhere. I was like, oh, do you, so you don't go to church? No, well, what is it that you believe? She's like, well, I believe in a God, but I don't really know uh, what it is I believe. I was like, awesome. Hey, I hope to see you next week at our small group. Gave her the information for small group. She showed up the following week. I was so pumped right? And it was like Riley was there and her friends were there and I like introduced her to a small group leader and beforehand I pulled small group leader over. I was like, hey, here's Riley's story. I was like, 
keep in contact with her. So she did. And like three months later, Riley came to faith in the Lord. It was awesome. But I didn't have to wait until Riley and I were like sitting across from each other and like peering into each other's souls and like had to have like this really special spiritual moment. Like there was chaos. There were literally students running around everywhere, right? Like I think it was dot, like we did like this massive ridiculous game where it was like dodgeball combined with shooting kids with a tennis ball gun. Because that's what you do in youth ministry. You tell people that you love Jesus for some reason, right? And so we're doing that and there's kids running around and all this stuff. And like in the middle of that chaos, it's like, hey, Riley, do you have a faith? And she told me about it and nothing happened that night. And then three months later, her small group leader helped lead her to Jesus. Like that was it. But I had to be willing to be able to broach that conversation with her, with her specifically because I cared enough about her spiritual state, knowing what I know, to talk to her about things that mattered. But the only reason I was able to have that conversation was because I was willing to ask that conversation, was willing to ask the hard question, was willing to broach that. We have to be willing to do that as followers of Jesus. Third, we have to show the gospel for what it is. Okay, the good news of Jesus saves us from eternal torment, saves us from condemnation. But beyond that, while we are here, while we are on earth, it makes us new people in Christ. It makes bad people good and good people better. It produces love, joy, and peace within us. Every person apart from Christ needs to understand what it is that Jesus gives us right now. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 18. We read it last week. But it says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. 17, Therefore, because of the fact, so, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone is a follower of Jesus, anybody is a Bible-believing Christian, the old has come, the new is here. Is here. All of this is from God who reconciled to us, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Living on mission looks like being different from the world. Being a Christian looks like being different than the world. If someone interacted with you, being a Christian, and then someone interacted with someone else who didn't know Jesus, would they be able to tell the difference between who was and was not the Christian? When I was in college, I walked into a church that I had never been before, and I haven't gone back since, but I wasn't angry. I just didn't live around there. But I remember a quote that the preacher used that will continue to, to stick with me. He said, if people aren't asking, check how you're living. If people aren't asking, check how you're living. We are a new creation. The old has come, the new, or the new has come, the old is gone. The sin in our life should be actively falling, falling away from us as we continue to become more holy. That's the theological concept of sanctification. That as you continue to pursue Jesus, you continue to look more and more like Jesus. You continue to become more sanctified. And as you become more holy, more people should notice a difference. If you act the same now as you did when you decided to live for Jesus 10 years ago, we have an issue. If your life has not changed significantly because of the fact that you're following Jesus, I would venture to say that your faith may not be real. 
we have evidence of our faith by the way that we live our lives. It's kind of like when James says that, that he will show us his faith by his works. He's like, I'll show you my faith because of the things that I do. There should be evidence in our lives of being a new creation. And if there is no evidence, I would venture to say you're not a new creation. If you aren't sure if there's evidence of Christ in your life, ask your significant other. Ask your best friend. Or if you're looking for someone to be brutally honest with you, ask your kids. They'll tell you. And ask them. Just say, hey, can you, like, is there an example you can think of of me loving Jesus well? Is there, like, can you think, and if they have a hard time coming up with a response to that, like the people who know you best in your life, if they can't come up with a response to that, how is it that a non-believer that you're not spending nearly as much time with is going to understand that you're a Christian? They're not going to know the difference either. It is paramount that we show the gospel for what it is, a fundamental change in our lives. And lastly, we should show the power and the winsomeness of the gospel. The power and the winsomeness of the gospel. Change lives demonstrate the gospel message more than anything else. You cannot argue with the power of a changed life. You can, you can learn all of the things about defending the faith and all of the things about apologetics and all of the, you can memorize as much Bible as you want, but you will not be able to argue, argue your way or someone else to come to Jesus. It's not going to happen. You can have the facts, you can have the figures, and, and there's a very small faction of people that you're like, hey, here's all of the evidence. And they're like, okay, I will believe that now. There's a very small faction. There was once a time in America, and this time is now past, unfortunately, where people just wanted to know what is true. Tell me what is true, and that is what it is I will believe. People are no longer asking that question about what is true. The new question, the question that has to be answered is not just what is true, but does it work? What is the evidence of truth that works itself out in our lives? Change lives. That is the question that has to be asked. And Paul told us, he said, hey, look, you have, to, you have to, in all of your conversations, be filled with grace and seasoned with salt so that, that we would know how to answer everyone, so we would know how to talk to people and interact with people who aren't a part of our, uh, of like our church family. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. It's one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It says this, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Let's stop for a second and just let's focus on that word wise, okay? Wisdom, that means we're going to have to use our brain here, okay? So be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let's read through this again, and I want you to take a moment, just be a little bit arrogant as we're reading through this for a second. I give you permission. I don't know if that's my permission to grant, but I give it to you anyway. Let's be a little bit arrogant, and, and as we're thinking about I want you to think in your head about how great you are at this in the midst of your conversation. Just think about your daily conversations. Think of one. Maybe it's work, how you interact with your coworkers or people that you employ maybe. 
Maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with your kids if you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe it's with, you know, your grandkids if you're a stay-at-home grandparent. Like, whatever it may be. Just think about those conversations real quick and think to yourself, you know what? Am I wise in the way that I'm acting towards outsiders, these other people? Am I being wise? Am I making the most of every opportunity? Not some opportunities, not opportunities when I feel like it, not opportunities that I'm going to get when I leave church and I'm like, wow, I'm really thinking about that right now. I should probably do something about it. Every opportunity. Are your conversations, are they full of grace? And my favorite, season with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Because those are your conversations. You're feeling maybe pretty good about it. You can read a room. You understand, like, like you are self-aware enough to be able to, like, hey, I'm just not going to be a jerk. And that really goes a long way in today's society. So that's good. Those are good in your conversations. I'm going to go a step further, though. And this isn't, this isn't an assault on anything other than a direct and total assault on Facebook. I hate Facebook. I hate it. For those watching on Facebook, I have one, too. I get it. Okay? Like, I hate it. I hate social media. I think it's one of the worst things to ever happen to our planet. That being said, I am on all of them, right? Some of you have this. Some of you are the same way. You're like, man, I hate it, but I have it. Because how else am I going to keep up with my neighbor that I lived next to 30 years ago? No one cares. Okay, but I, I completely and totally hate Facebook, and I'm not saying you have to despise it, but, but the only thing that Facebook has allowed for is for everyone to have a soapbox to shout into the world on. Like, like everybody now has their own personal platform, and that wouldn't be a big deal except people forgot about the second word in verse 5. Specifically, Christians have forgotten about the second word in verse 5 where it says wise, where it says like be wise, like use your brain. We get on there and we think, you know what, I, I, this is my platform, I'm going to shout out everything I believe into the world. They're my followers, this is my page, you don't like it, get off my page. You are not shouting into a void. There are people on the other side of that screen. And those people are connecting the things that you say to the things that you believe, even if they're separated. Meaning that you can't go on Facebook in the morning and share the picture of Jesus because if it gets a share and a like, he's going to save you or whatever it may be this week. You can't do that in the morning and then at 6 p.m. go on and say that you hate something. Why? Because now everybody who is in your following or whatever it's called now associates the thing that you hate with what it is that you believe. And guess what? There's a forever digital trail. It is not just some formless void that you're shouting into. We are no longer wise in the way that we act towards outsiders. We are no longer wise in using every opportunity, meaning including your social media, to be able to bring outsiders in. Our conversations are rarely full of grace. They are rarely seasoned with salt. It's our responsibility, church, to be full of grace, to be seasoned with salt in everything that we do. We have to remember that it's our responsibility to show the power and the winsomeness of the gospel because it's the best news possible. It should be spoken of in a way that holds weight with other people. 
So the question is, 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 is okay, look, like we, we come to a under, fundamental understanding. If those people who don't yet know Jesus are condemned to hell, and it's my responsibility then to live my life in such a way that is going to, going to be able to give a reason for what it is that they are looking for. Maybe they have seen, maybe they have tasted, like that conversation that's a little bit salty. They have tasted what it means to love Jesus. And so because that, man, I want a little bit more of that because that tasted really, really, really good. So what do we do with this? Church, it's our responsibility to share this with people who do not yet know Jesus. That is the most loving thing that you can do. The most loving thing that you can do. And it really does go back to this idea of our oikos strategy, and I know a lot of you have heard it before, but we believe, I believe, that we have, and every single one of you has eight to 15 people that God has both supernaturally and strategically placed into your life to make an impact for the kingdom of God. So the conversations that you have with them, those wise things, that you, the, the wise way that you act towards outsiders, those conversations that you have that will be full of grace and seasoned with salt, so you have an answer for those people that are in your relational world, those 8 to 15 people that God has put there. It's your responsibility. Don't shirk it. Don't mess it up like I did when I was younger. Don't burn those bridges. Yeah, if you don't have, have an Oikos card, we've passed them out in the back. They're, they're outside on the tables where you get coffee and donuts where we bribe you to come to church, the coffee and donuts outside. But then on the guest services table as well, there's Oikos cards out there. And all it is is a list of 15, just 15 things. It's nothing fancy. But on that list, it says, hey, I'm going to commit to praying for these people that we call pre-Christians because we have faith that we serve a big God. And so, you know what, I'm going, to, I'm going to write these names down and I'm going to pray for these people who are not yet followers of Jesus because it's the best way for me to be able to love those people is to tell them about Jesus. But I'm going to start by simply praying for them. By simply praying for them. And that prayer will be something really easy, like, God, I recognize there's broken people in my life. Insert the names here, Okay. And I would love the opportunity to be able to share about who you are with them. And whether that means I go on the offensive and ask them about their faith or they come to me and I tell them about mine, I just pray that they would want to know you in a very real way and I want them to know you and be excited to follow you because of my ability to show the power and the winsomeness of your word, amen. And then all you have to do is follow through. <laughs> That's all. But to get that boldness, to be able to simply broach the conversation, that's the hardest part is just ask the question. Do you have a faith? It's not rocket scientists, but it's absolutely intimidating and I get it. But what would it look like if we as the church decided to get going with our oikos, decided to actually start praying for those people who are not yet Christians, if each of us simply began to pray for the eight to 15 people who are in our lives? We would live in a much different world because the things that we would do would be intentional. They would be wise, seasoned with salt. We'd be more concerned with being loving and less concerned with always just being right and getting the last word in. That's our responsibility as Christians. 
The Bible says that they will know that we are Christians by our love. Not we will know that we are Christians because we are always right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And God, it's a big, it's a massive responsibility that we have. We are your plan A for the world, and there's no plan B. The local church is your plan A for the world. And it's our responsibility as the local church to be able to step up to the plate. And not just as a corporate entity, but as a collective of individuals who all get the opportunity to say yes to you, who all get the opportunity to share your word because it's what we believe, and the most loving thing that we can do with that belief is share it. God, put that burden on our hearts. God, make us bold as a church. But maybe there's those of you who are here who don't yet know Jesus. Maybe you're online and you don't yet know Jesus, but you, you've heard these different things that have been said this morning. Maybe you've heard about those who don't yet know Jesus are condemned that there is an eternity that you want to get yourself right before God, if that's you with head still bowed and eyes still closed, I would just ask you in the quietness of your heart to pray along with me. Just say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I fall short of your glory every single day. I fall short of your expectation, but I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sake that all that sin, all that stuff that I've messed up with, your son has taken and he conquered death so that I could spend eternity with you. I believe that. And see, I choose to follow you every single day. And that as I've committed my life to you, that choice becomes to share your word with those who don't yet know you. So Father, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.